Good morning. Uh, this morning we are reading Psalm 39, which is on page 437 of the Bibles under your seat. And it says, I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is measured, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all of my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am, I am spent by hostility of your hand. When, you're, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you will consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner to you, a guest like all of my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again, before I depart and am no more. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Sorry about that. Uh, I am Spencer Stewart, one of the disciples here at Free City, not one of the pastors. So if you're visiting today, I'm sorry about that. Um, I have visited a lot of churches, and it must be some kind of scientific law that you always visit on an abnormal day. Uh, some guest speaker, or he's teaching about tithing. Uh, one time, we, uh, we visited a church, and instead of a service, it was uh, like a business meeting to explain that the church's finances were so bad that the pastor was going to have to go get a different job, and they were going to sell the building. And so it's my hope and prayer that this service will not be quite that awkward for you. Um, but it was a matter of prayer. I don't know if that scares you. Um, come back next week, and Lord willing, Casey, one of the pastors here, will launch a series through First John, which he has illustriously titled First John. Uh, if you're not a visitor, I'm not that sorry. I guess that was just for the visitors. But if I haven't met you yet, then I am sorry. And I'll give a quick intro. Um, I was an associate pastor in El Dorado, Kansas, down by Wichita for about 10 years. And my wife and I moved to Lawrence with our three kids uh, six years ago so I could teach 7th through 12th grade Bible classes and New Testament Greek at Veritas Christian School. And uh, we started coming to Free City about nine months ago and jumped in uh, with the Teets Gilbert City Group. And man, we love our brothers and sisters in uh, that small group. And if you are not in one of the city groups, uh, we have, I think, eight different ones, and you can talk to Ethan, who is leading worship, one of the pastors here, uh, about those. They meet one night a week in someone's home to share a meal together, study the scriptures together, pray for one another, encourage one another. And when you hear Casey and Ethan make that pitch, I just want you to know they're not bluffing. It has been such a blessing to our family, and, and we want that for everyone. So uh, after attending Sunday mornings and, and joining a, a city group, we officially became members uh, this last summer. Uh, we, just, we believe what's, uh, what God is doing here. 
It really was a a you-had-me-at-hello kind of moment when I first heard Casey give the mission of Free City. I I could have said to him, but I didn't because that would be weird, but I I could have said, you had me at Free City exists to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's that's what I exist for. We all were created and recreated in Christ to do that. And we see it happening here and are just happy to be a part of it. Uh, One of the things that sucked us in uh, was a commitment to expository preaching. Just going verse by verse through books of the Bible and and trying to show what's there. Uh, With topical preaching, uh, there's a a danger that you don't really get beyond the the teacher's uh, and the preacher's pet topics. Uh, Each week, a verse or two can just become a springboard for him to talk about the same favorite topics. But expository preaching stretches and challenges the pastors and the congregation to hear all the words of God, to, to receive the whole counsel of God. And I have the honor of demonstrating that benefit today because honestly, I would never pick Psalm 39 to be my first time preaching here or, or anywhere. Uh, you just heard it. I've been staring at it for days now, and, and I still think all four sections are going to be tricky to preach. Uh, I wanted Psalm 37, delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Instead, I get to tell you, you're going to die soon. <laughs> but all scripture is God-breathed and profitable says 2 Timothy 3.16. And I do have faith. I I do believe that we need Psalm 39. As 21st century Americans, we we have such an aversion to dying and death. We have professionalized and institutionalized and, and sequestered the dying process out of our homes, usually paying other people to help with that. And just in general, we're not as communal from birth to death as in the past or in other cultures today, where death is more familiar and and just an accepted part of of family dynamics. I mean, family members age and die in the home, and each family takes care of their own dead. Now, obviously, um, that can cause some practical problems. The uh, recent Ebola outbreaks in Africa, for example, are, are tied to their burial preparation rituals that happen in homes there. So I'm not saying that our current setup is all bad, just that it has a profound effect on our souls. And I have felt that effect personally. My dad died in my arms six years ago. And after six years of of congestive heart failure uh, from a rare blood disorder, and later that day and, and that week, I had this PTSD, panicky, discomfort with that space in my parents' home. I felt it every time I walked by that week. And I think it's just, I was 31 before death had been that close to me, unusually close. And it's just because I'm, I'm so American, uh, because that's not normal in the history of mankind. Um, we, we are so uncomfortable with the thought of, of aging and dying, that we, we try our best not to even think about it. I was, I was 31 before I even thought about being in my 50s. Somebody asked me a, 
a question about some ministry endeavor, and I, I said, I, I don't know, man, maybe when I'm 55. And then it hit me. I had never thought about being 55 or 50. And <laughs> no, no offense if you're over 50. It's not that it's that old. It's just that... that <laughs> I knew there's like major danger of using this example. I really mean it. It's not that it's that old. It's just that I get, we get so caught up in the now and so short-sighted. And Hebrews 2.15 talks about us in a, in a lifelong slavery to fear of death. We fear death. So we, tr- we try to avoid even thinking about it. And we focus on the short term and, and live narrow-mindedly. But here's David in Psalm 39 praying, Oh, Lord, make me know my end. That's an un-American prayer. And you might not like this psalm even when we get all done with it. But I think there can be great benefit to us from this psalm. But we're going to have to pray for that. So join me. Let's pray. Father, pray that you would help me get out of my own way, help everyone else uh, see past the new guy and hear from you, because we need to hear from you. We thank you uh, for your great promises that you will accomplish powerful things in our hearts through your word. Your living and active words of spirit come and produce faith in our hearts and make us more like you. In Christ's name, amen. So there are four sections in Psalm 39, what we would call verses to a psalm. But now we've numbered verses in the verses, and that's confusing, so I'll just call them stanzas. There are four stanzas. ESV actually puts a line break in between each one. It's very helpful. The empty space helps you see a new verse, a new stanza. Uh, we, could, uh, we could label them confusing, depressing, glass half empty, and leave me alone. <laughs> but if we tilt our heads just right, maybe, maybe we could see them as suffering in prudence, Prayer for wisdom, hope of salvation, plea for mercy. And we'll see that God has answered this song of lament in Christ. First, verse 1 uh, is a cryptic start, really. He, he says, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. That, that muzzle seems a bit extreme, um, what, why is he doing that? He says, that I may not sin with my tongue. Why is he afraid that, that what would come out would be sin? We find out later in verse 2 that David is suffering distress. The Hebrew word behind that means pain. And it could be physical pain too, but at least it's psychological pain, distress. His, his soul is hurting. And David believes that he is suffering because God is causing his suffering, because God is chastening him for his sin. That comes out in the third stanza, verse 9, you have done it. Verse 10, remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. Verse 11, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin. David knows he's been disciplined for his own transgressions. And it seems that in the first verses, 
He's afraid that his lament might mislead unbelievers, that the wicked would use his lament to slander God and slander the people of God. Now, David's situation, uh, being chastised like this, opens a can of theological worms, and I'll try to do something with that when we get to the third stanza. But at least we could appreciate that this psalm opens with a noble model to be careful with our language before unbelievers, especially in suffering. I don't know about you, but I keep a a filter on my tongue pretty decently most of the time. But if I get a little tired, a little hungry, a little hurting, that, that filter weakens. And David knew it. He knew this suffering is dangerous for my tongue. So verse 1 opens, I said, I will guard my ways. I will guard my mouth. The I said shows resolve. He was committed not to dishonor God with his speech. And the apostle Paul exhorted us to keep our speech gracious always, seasoned with salt, and to guard against bringing reproach upon the gospel. It's not easy. David said in verses 2 and 3 that the silence itself was painful. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. But here's David trying to keep it bottled up. But his heart is burning. It's like he's sick with a spiritual fever. In verse 3, he says, as I mused, and the Hebrew for mused is actually the same letters as the word side. And David probably knew that uh, it was the same letters. It could be read either way. And he decided to use it anyway because both work. They go together. As, as he mused, as he thought about his trials, he was sighing in anguish. And a fire burned in his heart. He was like a furnace that had to be vented. And so the last line of verse 3 says, Then I spoke. Who did he speak to? To whom did he vent in the second stanza? Verse 4, O oh Lord, starts his prayer. For wisdom. When you see Lord in, in small caps or all caps like that instead of the regular lowercase, it's because the Hebrew word behind it is not the, actually the word for Lord, Adonai. It's actually the personal name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh means I am because uh, He is being itself, uncreated, uncaused, but maximally alive perfect fullness of being. He explained his name to Moses in Exodus 3 as I am who I am. And that construction emphasizes the freedom of the subject in doing the verb that gets repeated. But God chose a verb of being because he has life in himself. He is his own source. He is self-sufficient, all-sufficient. He was saying in effect, no one created me. No, no one defines me, no one gives to me, no one makes me do anything. I am sovereign and free to be perfectly me. And I love justice and mercy, so I will redeem you graciously. So when David had to vent, he cried out to Yahweh, his covenant God, who had made so many gracious promises to him. And I don't know all of your trials all that you've suffered or or will suffer soon. But I know this psalm models for you to cry out to Yahweh, the, 
the God of the new covenant in Christ. Even when you don't have pretty things to say, just go for it. Vent them to Yahweh. So verse 4, when David did that, his start, though, is so surprising for us. He says, Oh, Yahweh, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. And like I said, as Americans, we need this prayer. Fleeting is the same Hebrew word as cease. David prayed, please let me know how true it is that I am a thing that ceases. He prayed, make me know, let me know. But he continues to describe his state. It becomes clear he does know. The point seems to be, oh, Yahweh, make me conscious of my impending death in a way that affects my present now. And God breathed that prayer into Scripture to teach and affect us as well. Not once, but twice. In fact, David might actually be echoing Moses' psalm. Moses wrote Psalm 90. And remember, Moses knew that he would die outside of the promised land because of his sin. And Moses prayed in Psalm 90, verse 12, Teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's foolish to ignore the fact that we'll die. The wise consider it. We should live now like our days are numbered, limited, that we are a thing that ceases. So back in Psalm 39 and verse 5, in verse 5 he says, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Do you measure in handbreadths? Um, it's good that there's an app for that now. Because uh, that's hard to say, even handbreadths. Handbreadths. Um, it was it was the span across your four fingers. It's about three inches. And David could have said my years or my months, but he chose the shortest option. He said my days. They're just a few handbreadths, which is plural. Maybe maybe to to describe life as a series of short seasons. I mean, none of them is that long. We just quickly pass through the seasons of life and then. We die. He prays, my lifetime is as nothing before you. I've got a few handbreadths, like nine, ten inches. I mean, picture that ruler lined up next to the eternity of God. From everlasting to everlasting, our handbreadths are nothing compared to God's eternity. And David's lamenting it. Verse 5 finishes, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Picture yourself outside on a cold day, and you exhale, and you see your breath. It's, it's vapor. How long is that vapor there? Like a few seconds, and then it's gone? That's your life. That's your life. You're a vapor that's here for a few moments, and then it's gone. Life is so fleeting. In Hebrew, mir is all, all vapor, and standing signifies standing firm. And Alan Ross is a Hebrew scholar. He thinks that David's setting up a contrast between what we pretend to be and what we really are. Because vapor isn't firm, right? Like a, a man can be presenting strength, but he's all vapor. There's no enduring strength. It all fails. It all fades. 
In verse 6, he says, Surely a man goes about as a shadow. And shadow is actually the word for image in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when God says, Let us make man in our image. And it's so jolting here because it's, it's obviously positive in Genesis 1, but it's not positive here in this psalm. David's not celebrating the majestic image of God. He's lamenting the vaporous image of man. Maybe he picked it to, to make more dramatic the point that we walk around as ghost-like versions of the glory that we were meant for. He says, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. And ESV adds a footnote after the for nothing. It says the Hebrew is surely as a breath they are in turmoil. Breath, it's, it's that vapor from two lines above that we saw. He's saying even if you succeed in life, even if you heap up wealth, you can't keep it. You can't enjoy it for long. You're a vapor. And who knows what vapor will get your stuff when you're gone. And we see that word for a third time in verse 11. In verse 11, surely all mankind is all vapor. What's fascinating here is David's influence on his son Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. The, its famous opening in, in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. ESV puts a footnote there as well after its first use and says that word means vapor. It's saying, vapor of vapors, says the preacher. Vapor of vapors, all is vapor. Solomon used that word 37 times in Ecclesiastes. And there's some other geeky stats that that prove it's the dramatic theme of the book. Solomon was giving the same lament as Psalm 39. There's so much injustice, so much inexplicable suffering. And no matter how accomplished you are in life, it's short, and then you're gone. And it makes you wonder, what's the point? But there's so much good in the midst of all the trials. And that's what makes it so painful that it's all vapor. This last week, I uh, listened to, uh, re-listened to a podcast interview uh, with Kara Tippett's. Uh, I had listened to it last spring, cried my way through it, and this psalm reminded me of it, so I listened again, and I actually uh, watched a documentary about her on Netflix called The Long Goodbye. Kara Tippett's was a a 36-year-old pastor's wife with four young kids, and right after they planted a church in Colorado, right after she started a mommy blog, she found a lum, and they went in uh, for a sonogram, And uh, they found a mass in her lymph node and her armpit. She had a double mastectomy and and chemo, but uh, didn't respond to treatment. Uh, She had stage four cancer. It went everywhere. She developed brain tumors. But Kara knew the Lord. And when he taught her to number her days, she grew even wiser. She would say things like, I can feel that I'm dying but I have today to love the people around me. And I choose to care for them and and show kindness to them no matter how I'm feeling today. It was beautiful. And the Lord took her deeper with him and gave her courage to be open and vulnerable about the process of dying. It was so un-American how open she was with her kids and her friends and, and her church. 
And after two years, you, you might remember uh, Brittany Maynard made the news. She was a 29-year-old who moved to Oregon for the sake of physician-assisted suicide and was lobbying for that nationwide. And, and Kara wrote an open letter to Brittany sharing the love of Jesus and the hope of dying in Christ and pleading with her not to take that pill. And Kara's letter and her blog went viral. She was speaking in churches and on news stations. She published two books. And in the midst of all of her spiritual wisdom about going to be with Christ, I was just pierced to the heart to hear her say, I just want more time with my kids and my husband. She knew she was going to heaven, and, and she knew that's better, but still, I think it was good and right and true for her to feel that way. I just want more time. And after three years, she passed away at age 39. She got half a vapor, but she maximized it. And I commend her witness to you. Maybe we'll send out those links uh, with these, these notes. You might think I'm weird for having watched that, uh, I also watched um, Jim Gaffigan's comedy special called The Noble Ape, so that kind of balanced it out. Um, you know, don't write me off as morbid. I'm just trying to be more fully human, right? I'm, I'm just trying to listen to Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7. In Ecclesiastes 7, he says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Solomon tells us it's better to go to a funeral than a party. And it makes me wonder after Solomon repented from his idolatry, did he remember the lesson from his dad? Did he remember Psalm 39? Make me know my end. Make me know that I'm just a vapor. Solomon says the wise person goes to a funeral and takes to heart this fact. Soon it will be my funeral. The wise person asks himself, am I spending my handbreadths wisely? Am I living in such a way that it will go well for me after I die? Solomon says in 11.9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. You will meet your maker soon. So how are you, how are you using your vapor? Ephesians 5 says, Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Paul says the days are evil. That's intense. Wow. Why would he say the days themselves are, are evil? I think he's drawn from chapter 2. Probably don't have time to geek out on that right now. But I, I think he's teaching us that Satan so arranges culture for many people to waste their lives in disobedience and then be surprised by judgment. 
And Satan so arranges culture for believers to be distracted from pure devotion to Christ. Because the days are evil, we have to be wise and careful about our time. He says making the best use of the time, literally buying back the time. Own it. Make time work for you. We have to be filled with wisdom by the Spirit for that. Because we're naturally fools that just go with the flow and let time slip away and always feel like we're losing this fight against time. We're always surprised by how fast time goes by. I mean, maybe a class period feels slow. I'm a teacher, I'll admit that happens, sorry. Um, maybe a class period feels slow. Maybe a day feels slow. But the years fly by. And C.S. Lewis made a typically brilliant observation about this. He said, we are so little reconciled to time that we are even astonished at it. How he's grown, we exclaim. How time flies as though the universal form of our experience were again and again a novelty. It is as strange as if a fish were repeatedly surprised at the wetness of water. And that would be strange indeed, unless, of course, the fish were destined to become, one day, a land animal. The speed of time shouldn't surprise us. I mean, it's the standard form of our experience. But we weren't meant to die originally. We were meant to live forever with God in a global Eden. But sin brought death. And now we're uncomfortable with time. Uncomfortable with the countdown. Because Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has put eternity in our hearts. We long for eternal security. For eternal satisfaction in God. We are like fish destined to leave the wetness of water, destined to leave this unfortunate time, this evil age, and, and enjoy dry land. One day, time will not be a countdown to death. But that comes after death, after judgment. So don't waste your vapor. Live now like you'll meet God soon and be judged for how you spent your time. Back in Psalm 39, after lamenting how fleeting life is, David calls out from the gutter, verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? This starts a new stanza, the, the third, which we could label hope of salvation. He says, my vapor's almost gone. What am I waiting for? What could I hope for? And I love the and now. That's like a now what? what? What do I do with this? And you're thinking, what do I do with this sermon? And David tells us, he tells us, my hope is in you. My hope is in you. Facing death and final judgment as a sinner would be terrifying. Hopeless if there is not a God who is graciously willing to establish a covenant of redemption. For the repentant, there is such a God. And David placed his hope in Yahweh. And we should, too, in your suffering, wait patiently and cling to this prayer. My hope is you. And pray like he did in verse 8. Deliver me from all my transgressions. 
David knows he's got himself into this mess. Uh, he admitted he, he knew what was wrong. He saw the, the fence with the no trespassing sign, and he just pushed right past. He rebelled. He transgressed. And now he's reaping what he sowed as God disciplines him. That's in verse 11. In verse 11, he says, When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Does your God do that? We need to be careful here because Job is in the Bible to teach us that there is such a thing as innocent suffering. Job was blameless before God, not sinless, but because of his repentance and substitutionary sacrifices, God was not counting Job guilty or blameworthy for his sins. The suffering that Job experienced wasn't because God was disciplining him for any specific sin or even sin in general. So it would be unhealthy if we assume that all suffering, like every trial, every negative thing that comes into our life is God like spanking us because of our iniquity. Job's in the Bible to teach us that there is such a thing as innocent suffering. And he's also in the Bible to show us that God is absolutely sovereign over all of our suffering. It would be unhealthy if we assume that every trial is because of some out-of-control spiritual enemy. And so all we did was rebuke Satan for everything. Job was rightly most concerned about what God was up to in the midst of his suffering. And God was getting glory over Satan as God strengthened Job's faith in him. So there is innocent suffering and there is spiritual warfare for the glory of God. But I'm concerned that in our culture, we might swing the pendulum all the way over to those and not even consider what's happening in this psalm. Not even consider that God could choose to bring about pain in order to discipline his children. It is fair to ask if this is just an Old Testament thing and not a New Testament thing. I encourage you to check out 1 Corinthians 11. Some people in the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11 says, were sick because God was disciplining them for sinning in the way that they were taking the bread and wine and the Lord's Supper. God can still chasten someone in a new covenant church. And that needs to be a, a live option for us as we face trials. But the next question, the obvious question is, how do we know? Like, how do we know? Is, is this innocent? Is this chastening? And I'm sure that I'm not mature enough yet to help you as much as I want to help you on this. And I'm sure I don't have enough time to bumble about trying too much. So, so process this more with your pastors, with your city group leaders. And I'll just say this here. Uh, here's the benefit of just considering whether or not your trouble is the discipline of God. It gets you taking inventory. If I do that, start taking inventory, could this be, what is this? Remaining sinfulness is going to come to mind, and I'm going to be freshly grieved and freshly repent and renew my prayers to be sanctified, to become more like Jesus. So even if I decide, man, like, Pretty decent season. Like, I don't think this trouble is, is discipline. 
even if I decide that, I've still been sanctified by the process. And if I, and if I do come to the conclusion, man, I think it's that. I think it is discipline. I know it's love. And I do the same thing. I repent and pray either way. I know it's love. Hebrews 12 says that the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So go check out the context there in Hebrews 12 because it it says that he disciplines us for our good because he loves his children. Because he, he loves us, he won't leave us hurting ourselves by loving idols. In his infinite wisdom, he is able to use pain for our good so that we become more like him. We share in his holiness, it says, so that we can better forsake sin and be satisfied in him. So we might wonder whether we're being disciplined, but David knew. Uh, he knew. It's hard for me not to suspect, and it's, it's sanctified speculation here, hopefully. Uh, it's hard for me not to suspect. He, he, he wrote this psalm after the, the Bathsheba-Uriah thing, after the prophet Nathan came and told him in, in 2 Samuel 12 the ways in which God would discipline him for those sins. So he prayed in, in Psalm 39, verse 10. Remove your stroke from me. Stroke is the same Hebrew translated as plague in Psalm 38. In verse 11, last week we saw that. He, it Obviously, often plague signifies physical diseases that, that are sent by God. He's praying, remove your plague from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. I'm spent, I'm consumed, I'm finished. I can't endure this. And 1 Corinthians 1 says that's actually God's purpose in our trials is to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we stop relying on ourselves and rely on the God who raises the dead. Verse 12, really emotional, really gutsy. He says, hear my prayer, O Yahweh. And give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. It's gutsy because he's he's daring to issue imperatives to God that insinuate he hasn't responded rightly yet. Are you listening? Why have you been silent while I'm crying out to you? Don't keep silent. Say something. Fix this. Because I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my father's. And I did not see that coming. I I had to wonder, why is that supposed to motivate God to intervene in this? I needed Alan Ross to remind me that God had commanded Israel in the law to take care of the sojourners, the immigrants, refugees. So, So David's identifying with them. He's saying, I have no permanent residence here. I'm just passing through. I'm an exile, a refugee. I've fled to you. Help me. And the preacher in me was hoping for a positive closing, like just some statement of faith like to rally. But this psalm is so raw. So he ends in verse 13. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. He says, look away from me. I think if we ask David, what he meant. Like, do you mean 
that you want God to completely leave you alone? I think he'd say, no, that, that sounds like hell. I, I know the priestly blessing. I, I know may Yahweh make his face shine upon you. That, that's our longing. But I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically here because it expresses my desperation. And it's another gutsy prayer. He's saying, stop looking at me like that. Stop fixating on my sin and give me some relief. When I met with Casey last week, start hashing through this psalm. He quickly and, and wisely pointed to this verse and said, that's the connection to the gospel. This is the look that we fear from God. I mean, you know your parents can give you a look. Coaches, teachers, friends can give you a look of disapproval, a look of indignation. But this is the God of the universe. This is the judge of all the earth. And we deserve this look. Like we, we can't hide our sinfulness from him. We deserve that he would aim his holy, fiery eyes and consume us. But God is so gracious that the Father sent the Son in the Spirit to live a perfect life that did not deserve this look. But Jesus took our place. He volunteered for the cross, and he took that look for us. The Father had always, for all eternity, looked at his Son with love and delight, but suddenly he was looking at him like he was guilty of the sins of the world. And he didn't look away until Jesus said, it is finished. And he breathed his last and he was no more. But God was so pleased with his son's faithfulness. It was the greatest act of love in history that he raised him back to life on the third day. He seated him on the throne of heaven and he gave him the authority to put his spirit into the hearts of his people so that we never have to fear this look from God again. Never have to fear that look of ultimate judgment. He may discipline us for a season, but he's never against us. Hear me, if you are in Christ, God is always for you. Interpret every circumstance, every trial. This is God being for me in his infinite wisdom, his infinite goodness. So we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done for us by taking the Lord's Supper. But I need you to see one more thing from Psalms and, and one more thing from the New Testament. We've been seeing some words that connect Psalm 38 and 39. Both are by David confessing sins, lamenting the discipline of God's hand, God's plague. In 38.15, David said, But for you, O Yahweh, do I wait. And in 39.7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? Then check out Psalm 40. The very next one, also by David, starting in verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. God disciplined David. He disciplines us for our salvation, for our joy in his praise. And he is worth the wait. 
His answer may come in this life. It may come after death. For Jesus, the answer came after death. And because God lifted up Jesus from the pit, we can be confident that he will lift us up from the pit. So face the fact that your life is a vapor and get ready to survive judgment by forsaking sin and believing in Jesus and trust that not even death can defeat you. Last thing, now from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 3. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul wrote, For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And I think that is great news until he gets to the word death. I don't, I don't want death to be mine. I don't want death to be ours. How is this good news that he's encouraging us with? John Piper has pointed out that for Paul to be ours, for Apollos and Peter to be ours, would mean that they are our servants in Christ. Even death is your servant. Death works for you. It serves your eternal good, releasing you from this sinful age and bringing you into the presence of your God and Savior. Carrie Tippett's knew this and still wanted more time. The good news is that she'll get it. Everyone who dies in Christ will get more time. At the resurrection of all things on the new earth as we glorify God together by enjoying him forever. What a beautiful hope. So at the communion tables, let's celebrate Christ for securing our hope. If you are not a believer today, we encourage you to just stay seated and deal with God. There will be a prayer on the screen that um, we hope could help you. There will also be people at the back who would love to process with you, to pray with you. Uh, if you have repented and trusted in Christ alone for your salvation from your sins, then we'll drive down the right side of the aisle and tear off a piece of bread symbolizing the body of Christ broken for you. And dip either in the grape juice in the glassware or wine in the stoneware symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's pray. Father, let us know our end. May none of us waste this vapor of a life. Change us. Give us wisdom to use the time we have to live. Not for ourselves, but for your glory and for the good of others. As we obey your command to take this bread and wine in remembrance of you, deepen our faith. Deep in our faith that you are worth the wait. You are faithful in our trials. You are our sure hope. You conquered that last enemy, death, by your death. So we thank you, Jesus. Amen. Come as you're ready.